You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Idwin Jeffrey. This week, we're looking at heat waves in Australia. Australia's warmest year on record is 2019. And before that, the eight years from 2013 to 2020 all rank among the 10 warmest years on record. We know that heat waves are getting hotter, lasting longer, and occurring more frequently. And yet, government action doesn't seem to be really happening. There is a shopping list of the effects from heat waves. We know it includes rates of mental illness, risks of violence, and exacerbates existing health problems. There are definitely also a lot of effects that we don't know. The most of risk are the elderly, the very young, outdoor workers, and of course, as always, those pushed to the margins of our society. This is a systems issue. So... As we look to summer and the bomb's latest update, that we have a 50% chance of an El Nino, heat waves are an important issue that need immediate attention and preparation. We'll be chatting with Sweltering Cities, a growing campaign that seeks to empower communities experiencing extreme heat by lifting stories of a lived experience and building communities, organising campaigns and local impacts around public health. Today, we'll be speaking with Sweltering Cities, a growing campaign that seeks to empower communities experiencing extreme heat by lifting up stories of lived experience and building community organising campaigns around local impacts and public health. Sweltering Cities seeks to address heat waves as an issue through four main areas, increasing energy efficiency in homes, providing services for vulnerable groups, for example, increasing access to cool spaces and heat shelters, and increasing community advocacy around the issue. We'll be speaking with Emma Bacon, who is the Executive Director of Sweltering Cities, about the challenge of action in this space, the data that we currently have around heat waves and the data that we don't have, and the need for anecdotes and stories in pushing intersectional change in this area. Four thousand five hundred deaths are caused by periods of extreme heat since nineteen hundred, more than the total of any other natural disaster combined, according to new statistical findings from the Risk Industry Analysis Risk Frontiers. Now that's a twenty twenty stat, and I wanted to kick it off our interview today, Emma, with it. That's the headline statistic, but. How do we know these deaths from extreme heat actually occur or, or what they look like? So when we look at numbers like that, you know, these are pretty big, pretty scary numbers. The people who put them together are looking at, you know, excess deaths during heat waves, so analysing, you know, how many people are dying at different areas at different points of time, matching that with the weather. They're looking at people who have died of heat exhaustion and heat stress. Those are things that we can, you know, directly attribute to higher temperatures. Unfortunately, even though that's a big, scary number, it's almost certainly an underestimation of the health impacts of extreme heat. We know that people are going to emergency rooms with respiratory or cardiovascular problems, with mental health crises, um, 
and they're not necessarily being counted as being, you know, a heat-related disease um, or being caused by periods of extreme heat. We know that heat waves, you know, are the biggest killer of any environmental disaster in Australia. But the way we count um, illness and death is totally inadequate. Um, we know that the impacts are actually much larger. I've seen data to suggest that heat waves can increase liver failure, that it can increase rates of mental illness and even risk of violence. Do we yet fully understand the effects of heat? And what are the gaps in our understanding then? I don't think that we fully understand the health impacts of extreme heat. Um, partly these are, you know, data collection challenges to do with, you know, actually talking to GPs, community health workers, you know, the people collecting patient information in emergency rooms to increase awareness of the huge variety of diseases, um, you know, that we can point to extreme heat as making worse. Like, you mentioned assaults and mental health. Like, we've got statistics, you know, from here in Australia to say that mental health hospital presentations, um, assaults, you know, suicidality, like, all of these go up with temperature and there's some really, you know area statistics around, you know, the impact on young people and mental health. Do we know kind of what is around sort of like especially this this young person mental illness and, and greater presentations? Do we know details around why that happens? We know that partly it's stress on the body and partly it's people feeling unsafe in their homes. You know, we do a lot of work directly with communities who are impacted and we ask people, you know, what does it feel like? You know, how's your health affected, your mental and physical health affected on hot days? And people tell us that they feel really claustrophobic at home. Um, you know, hot walls, hot rooms, hot bedrooms. It's really hard to sleep. So days at a time of, you know, sleepless nights, feeling really restless, feeling uncomfortable in your skin, all of these things um, can exacerbate mental health problems. And on top of that, we know that people who are on lots of different mental health-related medications, including antidepressants and antipsychotics, are more vulnerable um, during heat waves, during periods of extreme heat, because those medications change the way that our bodies regulate temperatures. Those people are more vulnerable. Um, the issues are being, you know, exacerbated. And, you know, it's just not something that's spoken about. Like, I would ask, if there's anyone who's receiving a prescription for antidepressants who's also being warned by their doctor, you know, you need to take extra care during heat waves. You need to be careful during summer. We just don't have that awareness out there. That's really interesting because I suppose the the group that we do have heightened awareness around during heat waves is the elderly. Um, mm. This is one that we often talked about, but it sounds like there are a lot of other different groups, whether it's you know income or location or stuff like that, that we're, we're not talking about in the conversation. Yeah, that's so true. And partly that's emerging data around that. Like there's studies internationally around premature birth related to, you know, heat waves that people who are living in areas that get hotter and hotter are having babies much earlier, which of course is a huge risk um, to the mother, to the parent and to, you know, to the baby. This is a really scary thing. Um, we've also seen statistics from overseas saying that, yeah, like assault, domestic violence, hate speech all go up um, during periods of hot temperatures. So, you know, we're gathering data internationally about it and we're gathering data locally um, but as, you know, we're seeing more and more extreme temperatures, um, you know, we need to act. We can't just wait to, you know, we can't wait for the statistics. We need to act so we know that these are really, um, really bad impacts.
Sweltering Cities is very much engaged in this need for data. I saw this week that you've been helping trial a heat stress scale in West Sydney. Can you tell us more about the project? At Sweltering Cities, we are huge fans of research, uh, and like of community-based research, of you know, gathering stories um, of how people are impacted um, in order to you know, shift those dry statistics into really powerful narratives. The change, and through that work, we've um, you know come into contact with lots of different researchers and Australian institutions, including Sydney University. They have a really world-leading research institution at the um, Heat Health Research Institute, and one of their projects at the moment is uh, to you know deliver a heat health um, a heat stress scale, and so this work is based on work that was originally developed as part of the Australian Open Tennis Tournament, uh, heat safety protocols. Um, so, you know, when it's 30 degrees, there's fewer games. When it's 35 degrees, people have to take water breaks and things like that. And, you know, having a system where, you know, we weren't necessarily just understanding um, temperature, but also trying to understand what the health risks were to different types of people um, during those periods. So, it's one thing for us all to look at the app on our phones and see, oh, you know, it's going to be 38 degrees with 60% humidity for this period of time. Oh, what does that mean? Um, and how does it affect me compared to someone else, compared to my mum, compared to, mm-hmm. you know, kids, compared to someone who is, like, pregnant or has diabetes, things like that. We're all different. What this study is doing from Sydney Uni at the moment is delivering a personal heat stress scale so that you can go onto your phone or go onto the website, put in some just really basic information about yourself, like your age, what suburb you're in, and it'll take local weather data based on, you know, all these health studies to do with, you know, who is most vulnerable, how they're impacted, and give you um, not just a guide of, you know, what the risk is right now, but it's projected over the coming, you know, over the coming days, so you can see when there might be, you know, tomorrow or the day after, or a period of really high heat risk, but also give people advice, you know. If it's a moderate risk, this is what you should do. If it's an extreme risk, here's different advice. Um, and so that is going to be a really important way of communicating heatwave risk to people, especially as our summers get hotter. And that was Emma from Sweltering Cities. We're talking today about the effect of heat waves in Australia and the need for stories in promoting change. Next up, we'll be rejoining with Emma to talk more about the solutions and the approaches we need to be taking when preparing for the upcoming heat waves. The Victorian Council of Social Services in Melbourne uh, looked into the experience of heat of those living in public housing in Mildura 
and they found all these hidden problems around heat. So, for example, one anecdote was individuals were wetting their blankets to stay cool and that was racking up huge water bills or people were staying in their cars with the air conditioner on and that was burning petrol. And this was sort of domino affecting into cost of living crisis. So how do we capture the experience and the detail that we may not be able to see through a data set? This is super important work and VCOS has done a really fantastic job leading in this area and so working with service providers to you know, understand the challenges but also provide guidance to you know, their member organisation. We have delivered, you know, we have run the biggest ever survey on heatwave heat health and hot homes um, from the southern <laughs> A couple of years ago, we ran Australia's biggest ever survey on heat, health and hot homes. We spoke to over 2,100 people around the country from almost 700 um, different postcodes across every state and territory. And what we wanted to do was get a really deep, complex sense and lots of stories from different locations on how heat's impacting people. And reading these stories is quite a harrowing experience, to be honest, like, you know, we hear from a shockingly large number of people who are sleeping in their cars because their homes are so hot. Lots of people who are afraid for their children and really anxious um, that their kids are going to get sick in summer. People who, you know, they're telling us about medical conditions or skin conditions, neurological problems, all of which are exacerbated in the heat that make them feel unsafe even going outside. People are you know, going to shopping centres, going to pokies rooms, Mm. Um, for hours at a time because these are the only cool spaces near their homes, but they don't feel safe there. They don't feel comfortable there. Like, imagine going to the local tavern and spending six to eight hours sitting in the pokies room drinking the free coffee because your public housing unit in Kensington is so hot that you don't feel safe there. Mm. You know, there's great research coming out of Melbourne as well on the gendered impacts of rising extreme heat from a research called Margarita Wingditch and she's interviewed older women who, you know, their apartments are so hot that, you know, people in their 80s are going and sitting at train stations at midnight because they feel like that's more comfortable than being at home. And I don't think any of us would want that for our relatives or for any other person. And collecting these stories, you know, partly it's about listening to people and, you know, communicating to people that like, they're not alone. Like, we're so often... You know, extreme heat is treated like an individual problem. Largely um, like the climate crisis, isn't it? Like Whereas, the climate crisis. Yeah. Like, what can you do, like, individually to keep safe? But actually, these are huge problems that need ambitious solutions. So that's why we're gathering so many stories, and that's why, you know, VCOS and others are also trying to get into the deeper, gnarly human side of mm. these challenges. Well, that was actually a big thing I saw on your website, is that, you know, Swaddling Cities, as a campaign, aims to be intersectional. And I wanted to ask, you know, what does that approach mean to you guys in how you're operating and um, and working? Yeah, Our work is at the intersection of health inequality and climate change. And we know that vulnerability to extreme heat is driven by structural inequality. It's not just, you know, people's income, which does have a huge impact um, on how people can survive the heat, but it's also their housing security, it's sexism when it comes to, like, you know, income, when it comes to, you know, who gets their health um, problems taken seriously. Right. Um, when it comes to, you know, like the 
increasing number of older women who are, you know, in insecure housing or homeless. Um, you know, racism is connected to these issues. So we know that lots of the, you know, suburbs with the most migrants um, in our capital cities are some of the hottest with the fewest trees, these large urban heat islands. It also comes into question around, you know, when people are going to spend time at libraries or shopping centres or other places um, on hot days. Like, who is welcome, you know, to hang around a shopping centre for hours at a time? Like, we know that people of colour, First Nations people, young people, um, are often, you know, kicked out of spaces like that. So we have to look at this through an intersectional lens uh, to really understand how marginalisation is causing vulnerabilities, like... You know, the weather is one thing, but the disaster is caused by, you know, the, the structural inequalities in our society. Um, and that's why, you know, renters, people in public housing, homeless people, you know, are some of the most vulnerable. Yeah, and I, I mean, this is the interesting point with when we talk about solutions, because often around the climate crisis, at least in Australia, solar panels are the big solution to the crisis, if you like. But these are not always accessible. And so I was wondering, you know, what, how do we look to creating intersectional solutions for our community? I think you're right. Like, often when we talk in Australia about solving the climate crisis, the solutions are presented by people who want to make money mm-hmm. out of that solution. And, you know, solar panels are really fantastic. More batteries will be great. Let's have affordable renewable energy for everyone, um, 100%. But, you know, we also know that air conditioning and solar panels really start to decline in effectiveness above 45 degrees. Mm-hmm. And that in, you know, places like Western Sydney, temperatures are already reaching 50 degrees on the ground um, over summer. So it's not just about, you know, selling people solar panels and batteries and things like that. It's also about challenging the way that we build our cities to say that no one should be living in these urban heat suburbs. No one should be living in an unsafe home and increasing the minimum standards because if all of our solutions are about consumer choice, if it's about handing out vouchers to people who've got to pay, um, you know, the other part of it, um, you know, that's going to select only the people who can afford to make those investments and people who own their own homes and things like that. You know, we need to have really ambitious plans that increase the minimum standards of all of our housing. Um, Otherwise, people are going to get left behind. Interesting. And have you guys been working, correct me if I'm wrong, but like sort of mapping out those those areas, those heat spots? Yeah, like lots of what we do is taking existing data around where those spots are and then going talking to the community about what those impacts feel like on the ground. You know, climate change, planning issues, all of these can be seen as, you know, big, global problems or abstract policies. We want to know what it feels like on the ground in your suburb, like on your street. Um, Because if we can talk about the issues at a really hyper-local scale, you know, people can also feel confident becoming activists, like talking about change, talking about the changes they want to see. Um, And so that's part of our theory of change, that, you know, we are making these big global issues local in order to make sure that people feel like, you know, change has to come locally if we're going to have a global influence. As we said, the air conditioner sort of is currently our main defence against heat waves. I was wondering what sort of lines of action are then Sweltering Cities currently focusing on in terms of like trying to leverage change? Well, we know that, you know, the average star rating for a home in Victoria is 1.8 stars, where 
you know, zero is basically a tent and 10 is a home um, that requires very little mechanical heating or cooling. It's just really well insulated. So at the moment, the average home in Victoria is closer to a tent than it is to the current standard, which is um, wow. about to be seven, seven stars. Um, what that means is that, you know, there is huge opportunity for adding insulation, for double glazing, for draft proofing, making all these changes that are really not that expensive and save people huge amounts of money in, you know, electricity bills, in health costs, the, those are the type of things we need to make it easier for people to bring in. Um, and, you know, I know the budget has got some low-interest loans um, announced yesterday to, you know, support some people to do that, like to make those changes, mm -hmm. um, bring in energy efficiency, energy efficient appliances, bring in blinds, you know, it will be great if instead of it being low interest, either they were no interest loans or, you know, just giving people money. Yeah. But also, like, we're missing a huge number of people in this because we're missing renters. Um, lots of people in really low-quality homes, like rent rental homes are, you know, more likely to be lower energy efficiency and landlords have very little incentive mm. um, to upgrade the energy efficiency of a home that they're not living in. And... You know, that's a huge gap, and that's why we support increasing the minimum standards rather than, you know, handing out loans to people who um, can already afford it. You know, ideally we'd do both, but we really need to raise the minimum standards so people don't get left behind. You know, one of the big things, the big problems that we see at the moment in our planning and building system is that the climate data we're using to set energy efficiency and other standards is historical data. So at the moment, we're using the climate data from 1960s to 1990. And when they upgrade the minimum standards to seven stars in October, it's going to be 1990 to 2015. So this is still historic data. It doesn't take into account the hottest eight years on record, let alone the future climate data that we have. So one of the biggest things we can do is to actually start measuring our planning system and our energy efficiency and our building systems against future climate um, information so that, you know, not only are we increasing standards to reach, like, higher energy efficiency and reduce carbon emissions, but we're also ensuring that people are going to be safe in the buildings that are being constructed today. Um, so we need to start using future climate data in all of our planning and building systems. Emma, you've actually worked on quite a few environmental campaigns, including the Asbestos International Ban yeah. and Tencent deposits on bottles and cans. What's sort of been your the, the key to change from your experience? I think those two campaigns, the one to ban asbestos internationally um, that I was working on for a few years before this for an organisation called Union Aid Abroad at CEDA, supporting campaigns... Um, predominantly in Asia, uh, local campaigns where people want to ban asbestos, and the campaign to win 10 cents deposits on bottles and cans, which I think uh, Victoria is the only state that doesn't have at the moment, and they're going to bring it in soon, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these seem like really, really different campaigns. <laughs> um, you know, the asbestos one is about health, it's about these like long-term cancers, the 10 cents deposits and solutions. But something that brings both of those together is the fact that there is a really clear industry lobby attempting to prevent action that benefits us all. So the 
know, Coca-Cola, a plastic body, like, you know, there were people who were actively against these recycling systems um, and fought it for many years. And then when it comes to asbestos, you've got the international asbestos lobby funded out of Russia and Kazakhstan that are going to these countries like Laos, like Cambodia, like Indonesia, and saying, oh, you know, Australia banned, you know, the bad asbestos, but this is the good asbestos, and they're just trying to sell you, you know, other Australian-made materials. And, like, it's the industry lobbies who are actively spreading disinformation in the same way we think of, like, the tobacco lobby um, did different, like, you know, in the past. Um, and I think what, in some ways, our discussion about, you know, our cities is missing. Um, is I was really having an understanding of like who are the people making decisions that are creating these really hot, unsafe cities. Like there is a property lobby. Like there are big developers who are pushing back against any attempt to you know have more sustainable um, planning legislation to have higher energy efficiency standards. And I think that's really important for people to know that you know this is not a question of you know, oh, well, now we all know the problem, so of course the decision makers are bringing the solution. Like, these are political problems where we have to understand that there are really powerful interests who are actively attempting to prevent our cities from being transformed into the sustainable, equitable, livable cities that we need to achieve in order to, you know, reach a net zero future, but also live with climate impact, be safe in a future climate. And... That's something we're trying to talk about. We're going to do more of, but it's something that people really, you know, need to understand. In the same way that there's a minerals council and that there's a mining lobby, there are also people, um, you know, who are doing the same in our cities um, when it comes to planning and sustainability. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Eidwin. Today on the show, we heard from Emma Bacon from Sweltering Cities, a campaign that looks at heatwaves and intersectional community-driven solutions to preparing and bettering ourselves for these extreme weather events. You can find out more about Sweltering Cities at their website, which is just swelteringcities.org. They also have a Twitter account. Sweltering Cities will be increasing the amount of public meetups and conferences that they're having in the lead-up to summer, leading with a big public meeting being held in October. Details for this will be on the website And you can also sign up to a weekly newsletter, I think, that will provide updates on these campaigns. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-